0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: The issues that we have had, and again, these are really in 150 cases, we've had maybe two or three, less than five patients that we've had to go back and do anything. And interestingly, most of those patients have been people with either mediatal or, or urethral type strictures and probably from the catheter or things. And most of them have been mediatal strictures. Again, I'm talking about literally less than five patients.
0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes Spotify at backtable.com. This is Jose Silvacio's host this week. I'm happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Ali Kasrayan. Uh, This is the second time he's with us. Dr. Kasrayan is a board-certified urologist in Jacksonville, Florida, provides general and specialized urologic care to patients in the Duval County and Northeast Florida region. So Ali, welcome back to Backtable. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Uh, it was a wonderful uh, time we had before. I, I look forward to our conversation today, and I really appreciate
0: you having me on. No, no. Thanks for coming in. So today we're going to talk about aquablation and you being one of the early adopters of this technology. Can you tell us how it happened? I mean, starting a new technology? So it was really interesting. Like for me, before
1: doing aquablation, I was never a primary BPH person. The BPH cases I would do Where really, as a, a prostate cancer person, they were for people with really large prostates who refused to do a prostatectomy for management of their prostate cancer. So it was really trying to set them up for other therapies, whether it's radiation therapy or ablative therapies and things of that nature. So it was trying to get their BPH and their large prostates manageable and improving their urination so that, for example, if they had an obstructive prostate and a large prostate, and they really adamantly refused a prostatectomy, which really would take care of two problems at once, a prostate cancer that needed therapy and an obstructing prostate that was causing them symptoms, you take care of two things concurrently. But, you know, when you talk to people about their options and they're reasonably refusing that option, then you could potentially open up their prostate get them better from their urination aspect and think about an ablative option like radiation therapy. Some people really wanted to do something like high-intensity focus ultrasound, like and so you got to get the prostate smaller, other type of ablative option. So I was doing very large bipolar TURPs, 120, 130 grams. And the challenge for those patients, if they're refusing a radical prostatectomy, even a robotic technique, it's very difficult to talk that patient into a simple prostatectomy, even if it's a robotic option. And I, you know, admittedly, I'm not the person that's really relishing doing the TURP. There's some people that think it's an amazing procedure and they really enjoy doing it. I was not one of those people at that time. So I was in a conference in Europe and I walked by this booth and saw this amazing technology, which it used an ultrasound with the idea of looking at the prostate from outside in and then using a cystoscopic approach, looking from, from inside out and using a water jet to open up the prostate. And this was many, many years ago. And, and it was an idea. I, I spoke with a person at the table and they're like, well, is this an idea? We're not uh, yet going to be doing this. And definitely it's not in the United States at the time. So I gave him my name and kept my, my ear to the ground. And years later, I was very fortunate with a good friend of mine, Matt Urcolani, who's like a brother. He's a dear friend of mine. We got the opportunity to be part of the first team to get trained for this. And in uh, April of t- 2018, we were part of the first uh, case outside of clinical trials to be done in, uh, in a small city in DeSoto, Florida. And then with both of us, we were trying to find a place to do the cases. He was able to get a, a hospital for us to do that first case. And in July of 2018, I was able to get our first cases here in Jacksonville going and get a program started. And, you know, we just finished July of this year, our 50 year of cases completed here. And, and we've been very pleased with how our patients have done and the durability of the outcomes And one thing that's been very interesting, you know, the expansion of my personal practice of never really being someone who did primary management of BPH and how the patients would find us to do this very specific technology for BPH. And patients who had put off managing BPH that was really bothersome for them for a long time for very big prostates would not find something that they saw as an opportunity To treat their BPH, and really a lot of it was driven for their concerns, whether it was founded for some of the side effects associated with other therapies. So it was really, it's been a really eye opening and interesting way of of looking at. BPH and the therapies that are associated with it, and then learning more about how we're expanding the management of BPH with better and more minimally invasive options for prostates of all sizes. And I think aqualbation is one that that is really, really impressive because you can use it for prostates of any size. And that's been
0: really eye-opening. And Ali, those first patients that you had, I mean, how do you convince them or do they ask how many have you done? Do you tell them that this is something new that... You're going to be the first one in the United States or one of the first ones. It was very interesting. So those initial
1: conversations that we would have, there were men who had very large prostates and median lobes. And still it's very interesting that our practice still is mostly very large prostates. Our average prostate size still remains. And we're just analyzing our five-year data and our average prostate size is somewhere between 103 and 104 cc's. So it has not decreased almost 90% or more of our patient, and that number has increased Of our patients have a median lobe. About 50% of our patients are in retention, with more than a third of those patients after actually being catheter-dependent, either with CIC and, and a good number of them with a Foley catheter. And so the patients that are fighting us to do this are not the small prostates and, and really looking for the ejaculatory function preservation, which, which a number of people are. So those first patients that we were looking at this were people with very large prostates who were trying to avoid the large TURPs or the simple prostatectomy. So when we kind of explained to them, here's another option for managing this big prostate, the retention and things like that, those patients were very, very excited because finally we found an option for them to manage their BPH in a way that avoided some of the fears and concerns and the side effects of either a simple prostatectomy, which for a long time they adamantly refused and were not interested in, or you know the possibility of doing a TURP, which for reasons that I still you know I still think that a, a, a TURP is a wonderful procedure and people do very well with it. So, so I don't think that's as as horrible procedure as the perception is I think the PR agent for the TURP is not a very good one. So I think your team from Backtable Urology should potentially touch base with the ones from the, for the TURP and potentially help them out a little bit. But again, the perception is out there. So I think it was an easy discussion. And I think some of those earlier discussions were actually easier than any of the other ones, because you know they saw this as an opportunity that they never had seen before. So, so it was really, really interesting for me, especially as someone who initially was also, just like those patients, really blown away by by how novel
0: and interesting and precise and accurate this technology was. And at that time, I mean, you were still doing, or maybe you're still doing the robotic simple prostatectomies, but how does the criteria or including more patients have changed in your five years of doing equilation? So for me, I mean, this is mostly what I do for the management
1: of the bigger prostates, where where it has potentially changed what I do for BPH in general. It has expanded our exposure to some of the uh, novel therapies that are coming out in the non-resective techniques for smaller prostates and prostates that potentially have more Mild to moderate level of obstruction on your dynamics testing and things of that nature that don't have median lobes that may potentially not necessarily need initially a resective technique. It has also expanded our collaboration with interventional radiology a colleague of mine that we work initially actually mostly with with our our oncological procedures and large PCNLs or percutaneous nephrolithotomy. I have an interventional radiology colleague of mine that I work with very closely who approached me about prostate artery embolization several years ago. And, and it was really came from some patients who had very large prostates who were bleeding in the hospital. And he took care of them. And he was like, hey, what do you think about this as a procedure? And there's a colleague of ours in, or in Miami who has a very large experience who had, had, had talked to me after our experience with aquablation. And then so in looking at the non-aquablation-type procedures and the expansions of things like Eurolift and Resume, and now there's ITIN out there, Optolume made some presentations at the AUA last year in, in April, and we've been very fortunate to potentially be a part of some things coming up in the near future. Those are some very exciting technologies that are continuing to emerge for how we manage BPH through the spectrum of the prostate. But I still think for the prostates with big, median lows, for people that have severe obstruction and retention, we're still in a place where good resective techniques, the laser nucleation, the simple prostatectomies, and then the aquablation or nice resective techniques like a good TURP, a bipolar TURP, people that are very adept at the green light laser vaporizations and things of that nature, in good hands for surgeons who are comfortable in those technologies and know what they're doing. I think those are the things that we have to kind of talk about. I think the aquablation and what I think is a powerful technique is that it democratizes being able to manage prostates of any size. And especially for me, at least for the bigger prostates, to be able to do a procedure within about an hour for the very big prostates, about an hour and a half or so, you can get your prostate patients usually home in the next day, some places are doing this as an outpatient procedure. Most patients tolerate this very well. And as we can see in some some studies that have been published recently, the five-year data shows a very, very great preservation of outcomes over that time period Very with a very low retreatment rate. You know, studies have showed about a 1% retreatment rate per year. The five-year results for WATER1 had a 6% retreatment rate versus 12% for the TURP. The WATER-2 study, which was a five-year follow-up for the larger prostates, 80 to 150, showed that about 94% of the patients did not need any secondary therapies because of the preservation of their symptom control was maintained to that. I mean, those are powerful numbers. And we found similar results for us, that our patients are continuing to, to benefit from the therapy, and we feel very, very fortunate that we're able to take care of our patients, usually with very large prostates, with obstructing median lobes, half of them were in retention, and we haven't had any of our patients really that are, that are catheter-dependent go back to needing catheters, which for us is very, very powerful and very rewarding, especially as someone that before this really didn't take care of much functional urology. So it kind of opened your eyes of the power of taking care of patients' quality of life for a disease process that's purely a quality of life disease process. You know, you're not taking care of a cancer and then also paying attention to their quality of life. They're truly looking for a way to improve their, their, their quality of life and preservation of things that really, for a lot of patients, were avoiding doing anything because of the, their fear of the implications of the side effects. And Ali, who will you say is not a candidate for this technology? Honestly, you know, really the things that you have to think about are people that may not be candidates for surgery and anesthesia and things of that nature. So that's one thing that we have to kind of be very, very mindful of is the surgical candidacy of this aspect, especially in light of the fact, and this is one thing that we talk to as the emergence of things like prostate artery embolization, which I know is a very controversial topic as we as urologists try to preserve our fields and BPH and things of that nature. So I know that that's a bit of a challenge, but I think if you work well with your interventional radiology colleagues, you can build relationships that matter. Like for example, my own radiology often sends me patients to go and talk to him and they've never had a workup of their BPH. And so he'll call me up and say that, you know, I'm seeing a patient who's interested in BPH, but he's never had a workup. He's here with a catheter, and I don't know whether he's in retention because of an atonic bladder or because of BPH. So then you'll meet that patient, and they may be disgruntled at the fact that they have to go through a workup, but that, that's a very, you know, it's a wonderful relationship that allows for that. So the surgical candidacy is, is an important one. And then the other thing that comes up that, that, you know, you and I have talked about and discussed before is that comes up a lot with aqua ablation is whether or not people who are previously taking anticoagulation for cardiac issues, the Coumadins, the zarelto's the, the Eliquis, even aspirin and Plavix and things of that nature, how do you potentially manage those? The way I manage those is, you know, for people that are on those medications, you want to make sure that you touch base with their cardiologists or the hematologists, the people that have them on those to make sure that it's safe to be off of them and be off of them for the appropriate time period. With the antiplatelets, I typically want people off of them for about seven days before for the medicines like the Xarelto and the Eliquis uh, two to three days before. And then look to appropriately restart them when you feel that you're comfortable to restart them and and make sure that patients are doing okay from that standpoint. And fortunately, we've been very, very blessed that we've been able to do that. We've been able to take care of our patients who are on these medications and get them off safely, get them to those therapies and get them back on those medicines safely. And we've been very fortunate that we have not had much difficulty in terms of patients going back to the operating room because of bleeding. We have not had a a big transfusion rate. We've just finished our five-year experience. We're we're about 150-plus patients. I think we just passed uh, 154, 155 patients in our experience. and, And we've had in our experience, I think, three patients who've had transfusions. And two of those patients actually were getting transfused because of bleeding from a very large prostate. And In the process of that evaluation and during the hospitalizations and things of that nature, talking to the cardiologist, because of concurrent medical issues, this seemed to be one of the safer things to do to open up their prostate channels and deal with the bleeding once all that was stabilized and they were were doing well from that standpoint. And again, and this was a time where we did not have anyone doing prostate artery embolizations and things of that nature. So they actually weren't being transfused specifically because of bleeding associated with, with the aqua ablation procedure, which is kind of like a current process. One patient, our anesthesiologist, just decided to, to start giving a transfusion and they had a hemoglobin something around 15 or 16 afterwards. So we showed up in the recovery room and he was just hanging blood. And so I just count those three because, I mean, realistically, they they got a transfusion, but they probably could have done fine without it. That gentleman could have. And
0: those transfusions
1: were the first patients that you did or very early in the experience. All three of those patients were in the first six months to a year of our experience, but really within the first early experiences. And those were Interestingly, so when we were first doing this procedure, very similar to the to the water studies, we weren't doing a bladder neck cautery. So for the audience, the way the technique is done now. So the way an, an aquablation procedure is done, you're using an ultrasound, a transrectal ultrasound to allow for the planning of the aquablation procedure. So basically the ultrasound allows you to see and evaluate the prostate from outside and and really look at the transitional zone and the portion that you're going to open up. And that allows you for the planning of what the water jet is going to actually open up and what you're going to preserve. You preserve the bladder neck. You're in front of essentially where the sphincter mechanism and the Virumontanum is. You have a vero or a, or a butterfly cut that you plan so that you can try to preserve where the where the ejaculatory ducts are draining and you stay away from that. That allows for the strong preservation numbers that you have in terms of anagrade ejaculatory preservation. And so that's the planning aspect of things that you have. And so that is the ultrasonic portion of the planning stage. And then you have a cystoscopic view that you have where the water jet technology is incorporated into the cystoscopic view. And so with that combination, you have a lot of precision and accuracy in terms of the planning stage. So the water jet then opens up The prostate is a a, a very powerful water jet delivery that that essentially ablates and, and opens up the channel. The water jet has about a 2.4 centimeter throw of the water at the lower portion of things which again you can plan the depth of the of your planning and at the lower portions of it the strength of that water jet is very weak so that it doesn't hurt the tissue at the at the lower depths of your planning so what's nice about that is that you can feel confident that you're not gonna not gonna hurt the tissue at those areas and actually if you have, you have control throughout the procedure to either stop the water jet or secondarily de- Decrease or increase the height, but you cannot go beyond the limits of your planning, so that can prevent injury and things of that nature. So, 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 it's good. Once you finish the water jet portion, which usually takes less than less than four to five minutes with each pass, and in most of these studies, the total ablation time or water jet ablation time is about eight minutes to nine minutes, and really most of them have been eight minutes or less. Then you actually go in with a resectoscope, similar to a TURP. And you do a bladder neck cautery, kind of like a focal bladder neck cautery, where you do a little bit of a resection of fluffy tissue that kind of remains at the, at the bladder neck. You unroof that and you point coagulate it, the, the tissue so that you can stop any kind of bleeding at that point. Early in our experience, we did not do that. Basically, you went and did the water jet, did two passes, put a catheter in, and then you basically put tension with this catheter tensioning device And basically what, what a lot of times would happen is pray and you would pray, you know, initially (laughs) the first cases we did was very, very interesting. You'd kind of do that. A lot of times you put the scope in there and you'd flush and irrigate for a bit. And a lot of times you'd look and you're like, what on earth is, like you said, you'd pray during that you'd flush and irrigate. And And then you'd put the catheter in and you'd put tension. And while the patient's asleep, it looked great and everything would clear up. And then they'd wake up and it looked markedly different or you'd go in the recovery room. And then I remember I worked with my dad one of the cases, like, he came over to see what was going on, and I've really never seen his face like that either before or ever since. But amazingly, the patients did well, and, and, and the bleeding would stop, and, and even with that aspect of things, and some of those earlier patients, you know, one of my earliest patients was actually a bladder cancer patient, so I got to scope him, you know, every three to six months for years. You know, obviously, we're at five years now, so those time the, the frequency of those cystoscopies have, have gotten longer, but such a beautiful, wide-open channel, and a significant decrease in his voiding symptoms, and how quickly he improved, and the maintenance of that improvement was quite impressive from that standpoint. However, very quickly we kind of learned from those experiences and began to bladder and the cautery and that really turned things around in terms of again, from my experience. Fortunately, we did not have much transfusion or take backs or people returning to the hospital or anything like that, but. The comfort level of not having to worry about that and 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 just being able to go home and sleep at night and and being concerned and being able to answer questions that people would have regarding the concerns regarding the bleeding and the transfusions regarding that, both in terms of the data, but even anecdotal
0: conversations were able to improve with that change in the technique. And definitely, I, I think for me has been the the challenge or, or what I could call, call it a challenge, but the difference because I, I do see a lot of a uh, green light. And those I'm used to not seeing blood during doing prostate procedures. And every time that I did a turp, I said, why am I still doing this? So when I go in after the aquablation, I mean it bleeds. I mean but afterwards it starts big, when you reach that area of the bladder neck that you start covering and, and then you stop the bleeding, then you see the big hole. And also on the ultrasound you can appreciate the big defect that that you get from the aquablation. In terms of going back to the technique, How aggressive are you in terms of tissue removal? Because right now, I mean, I haven't done that many cases, so I'm still sticking in the upper part of the prostate, just very parallel to the prostate. I'm not doing any angulation or anything, but are are you doing many passes? How how many passes are we different angles you're doing? So with the water jet portion of
1: things, the vast majority, I'd say more than 90, 95% of our water jet ablations are about two passes. And it really depends on the size and also the shape of the prostate. So we recently did a 457 gram prostate, and so when you're doing that, you really kind of it, it, it it really is dictated by the shape of the prostate. So this was almost like two different prostates. So he had one prostate, you know, one part of his prostate was almost almost entirely at the at the proximal into the bladder. So it was amazing that this guy, for years up until he went into retention, was able to urinate at all. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then you had the intraprostatic component of the prostate. So we basically had one plan of doing basically two, almost two and a half to three passes with that giant portion of things within the prostate, and then almost like two or two and a half passes within the intraprosthetic component of things. So that that was a one case we've had where he did about five passes. Uh, it was really like, kind of like four and a half. We've had some cases where we've done three passes, but the vast majority. You now we've had one case where we did four, which is a very large prostate. Most of them are two passes, and. You know, you're very careful if you have these big median lobes of how you, you're you're careful how to plan it so you don't do too much at the bladder neck. So you actually basically cut it off. So now you have this big giant median lobe floating around in the bladder because then you have to essentially figure out how to then resect that floating around median lobe and make sure you don't back wall the bladder. So we're very careful in how to do those things so that you don't set yourself up for having to do more later on. Sometimes when people have a a median lobe, you can actually plan on how to safely thin it out. And then when you're doing that bladder neck cautery, you can then actually then safely resect that portion and be safe to make sure you don't injure the, uh, or or give too much water jet energy at the trigone from that standpoint. If I'm worried about what that relationship between the, the bladder neck and the median lobe and the trigone is, you can always go and take a look with a cystoscope right before and get an idea of what that looks like and that really takes a few minutes beforehand if you need to do that so those things can give you some some idea of what the anatomy looks like so you can plan how to to better assess the the planning of the bladder neck versus the intraprostatic co- portion of things but even even with that the vast majority of our plans are are two plans sometimes you can drop the handpiece so that you can better include the power that you need, so that you can better, better deliver the energy in a way that more effectively opens up the channel. And you decide that based on the ultrasound. Based on the ultrasound, and then also the relationship with what you're looking at intraoperatively. And I think that's where the elegance and the beauty of this procedure really, really shines, is that it allows you some artistry in terms of how to deliver the technology in a way that can optimize your end delivery of the outcomes you're hoping for. So every case is different and every case, you know, every prostate has a little subtlety in terms of the difference of it. And and with this, it almost makes you want to use an ultrasound every time you do a TURP or anything like this, because you can actually see what's going on. You know, I had one case one time who, this was a patient who who I met who had had two Urolift procedures done and was still in retention with something like an 80-some gram prostate. And I was trying to make a decision whether to do the aquablation first or get the Urolift implants out first. And he was really very, very passionate about getting all the Urolift implants. And And I just imagined going and dealing with that afterwards to be a little bit more challenging. And when I went and did a scope beforehand, there were a lot of the implants just right in front of my face. And you could see them with the ultrasound. So I'm like, oh, yeah, let me start resecting it. And the trouble with the T U R P is, you know, once you kinda of start it's tough to stop. So I'm like resecting and resecting and next thing you know, you look at the ultrasound and the whole process wide open. So I kinda of looked at my ablation rep who, you know, they're wonderful about being in there and they're very, very helpful. We kind of looked at each other and looked at the, the ultrasound and we we're like, well, what on earth are we going to aqua place? We ended up just kind of stopping because the TRP left us its beautiful wide open channel, but I could have probably done the same thing with the aquaplation in and they, you know, eight minutes as opposed to the amount of time it took me to open that whole thing up and get all the Urolift implants. And then I probably, you know, wasted a few bipolar loops in the effort, you know, from that standpoint.
0: I, I already have done a few accolations <laughs> after your lifts And yeah, I do the accolation and then actually the rep told me, hey, don't do like Cass Ryan. Yeah, so, yeah. so honestly, yeah, yeah. But,
1: but I learned yeah. from that to not ever yeah. do that again.
0: <laughs> and so thank you. So definitely I apply your knowledge. So Ali, in terms of going back to after the accolation, you go going with the scope, you do the resection. Right now, I would say uh, uh, it takes me about 10 minutes for smaller glands. Yesterday I was doing 180. I spent like 30 minutes just making sure because it was still bleeding. It was a very tall prostate. And usually I, I don't go up there when I do a TURP. So you're in an area that most of the time I, I'm not familiar because I don't go that high. So it took me a while. Is that something that, I mean, with the beer glass, you t- it takes longer to achieve that clean or, or cautery effect on the bladder next so that you can go home safe? So for me personally, when we, when
1: I look at my data, and really kind of comparing it to other people's data from that standpoint. You know, one thing that's beautiful about the aqua ablation and what democratizes this once people get to a learning curve, which is really short, how to figure out the computer aspect of things. The company's really great. Their reps are wonderful. It doesn't take long to learn how to work the computer system. And, and if you're if you're adept at the ultrasound, I think that, that is a very, very easy to pick up how to use their technology. And, and I think they've done a beautiful job of making that easy. I think for me, what, what makes my cases different and longer versus case and things like that is how much time I'm going to have to spend doing exactly what you're talking about in terms of that bladder neck cautery, whether it's a bigger, median lobe, how much of an anterior component of it is. Because if there's an anterior component, uh, the aqua ablation water jet component does not shoot upwards. So then when you open up this beautiful opening in the bottom portion, now, it leaves a very nice component for the top to drop down. And then, especially with the ultrasound showing you how it's dropping in there and you see it, it's very difficult. Again, the you know, the enemy of good is better with a TURP, so you have to have a lot of self-control not to want to just resect that from that standpoint. So, those are the things to kind of be mindful. And for me, you know, it's really interesting... You know, a lot of the data now with, that you look at in the conversations you hear with things like the ITEND and the Optolume balloon and things like that, they talk about potential some of the successes that those type of technologies have is with doing what's called an anterior corporotomy, where they kind of split that anterior portion of the BPH adenoma, and potentially that's where some of the successes where the, the whole lip and the simple prostatectomy have where technologies like the TURP and the green light laser and some of the other resective technologies don't have in terms of, although they have great durability, they're not quite as good as HOLEP. They're not quite as good as a simple prostatectomy because you're not doing a complete adenomectomy or maybe it's that anterior corporatomy that could potentially potentially help things out. So I try to pay attention a little bit to that anterior component of things unless it's not an issue from that standpoint. Again, if it's bleeding, you can pay a little bit of attention. One, uh, your scope sometimes causes a little bit of a bleeding and if you ignore it, that could be a problem. I usually address that last because sometimes if you go in there and start messing up top, then now you can't ignore it. And if it starts bleeding and it's an issue, you have to address that first and then now you have something bleeding up top and you have something bleeding down low and it becomes kind of a mess. So I usually do things, you know, my plant, the way I resect, it is kind of like from the 3 o'clock over, and I'm left-handed. So, so I try to figure out which, which, whether the 9 o'clock or the 3 o'clock is easier. And for some reason, for me, it's easier to start at the, at the 3 o'clock position and come come and sweep the other way. So that, that's kind of my rule. And for me, it's a bit of a comfort zone to know that I'm away from the UOs. So it'll give me an idea of seeing. And I think the advice I can give people starting out with ablation is being symptomatic. It's easier to kind of start looking and chasing little things that may be bleeding, and very easy to get lost because it's not like you're looking at a prostate like you're doing a TURP. Sometimes you go in there, and it may look a little bit confusing, but if you go and look at your anatomy, and the ultrasound could really help you, but if you kind of start somewhere and be at the bladder neck, and even if you take little small bites at the bladder neck and know where your UOs are, You can systematically get there and control. Usually, you know, once you do that, you can be very systematic and you'll find that the bleeding is not, and it's usually not that bad. It stops, it's just, you can get control, you can be systematic, and then you can figure out how much or how little you want to do or how little or how much you need to do based on what the ultrasound shows, where how open things look and how much bleeding or lack of bleeding you have. And one trick that I learned from from our team early on that was a big, big change for me in terms of improving visibility and improving that process was, and one thing that I still do today is when I first go in with a resectoscope, I spend probably about five minutes. It used to be a little bit longer, but it's probably realistically about five minutes, But I can't say it's 10 minutes, but it's about five minutes or so, doing a good amount of irrigation in the bladder. And then I come back within the prosthetic urethra and do a bit of irrigation as well And that seems to kind of clean any bit of clot or any kind of tissue that's floating around. And that for me was was a game changer early on to help me visualize better when I go on with the scope. So it wasn't kind of like a mess that I was looking through from that standpoint.
0: And it also gets any of the little fluffy tissue that wants to come out as well. You mentioned irrigate the prostatic fossa because that's something that, I mean, I personally, when we do a TURP, we don't do. But now with the ultrasound, you know where you're at and you can actually irrigate. And I mean, and the opening is so big that really you don't feel resistance.
1: And, and so it, and it helps, you know, from that standpoint. And, and, and then when you go in there, you can actually see what's going on and you can be very, very on point to create a very systematic manner. And with the smaller prostates, it allows you to be very quick and sometimes slow is fast. You don't have to kind of very rapidly go through things. You can be systematic and you find that that actually helps you with the time and also to to allow for a good result where not only do you have a very nice open prostate, but you also have a good coagulation result from that
0: standpoint. And do you tend to remove fluffy tissue that is not in the bladder neck? I mean, resect with a resectoscope?
1: So with me, I don't do things through the whole prostate, although it takes every ounce of strength not to because once you start doing it, it's very tempting to do that. But sometimes with these bigger prostates, if you did that, I mean, you could be there for hours. One place that I do pay a little bit of attention to is I do, you know, towards the, once everything's controlled and I'm kind of finishing up the procedure, I do come back near the viromontanum and look at that apical tissue to make sure there's not any, you know, fluffy tissue that looks like it's very amenable to kind of coming together and creating a band where it could then create a kind of like scar tissue that now could create like uh, a web yeah. like a little bit of a web from that standpoint. And one thing I do when, when when looking at that, I have very frank discussions with my patients about their goals for preservation of ejaculation. One thing that's kind of funny when we published our first paper for our 55 cases at around you know 18 months or something like that. We found, and, uh, and when I was talking with the team at Aquablation, we found it was very interesting that we here seem to have the worst baseline erections of any of the international studies ever done for aquaplation, and that still seems to be true. And I'm not sure what's going on here in Jacksonville, Florida, or our patients. So our, our patients going into our aquaplation series had the worst baseline erections, and they seem to actually gain a few points after the aquaplation, and that still seems to be sure. And I'm not saying that aquaplations is a cure for erectile dysfunction, but what, what it does is when we have these conversations with our patients, we talk about what their goals for preservation of ejaculatory function is afterward. So if it's not at all a point of concern for them, then we kind of try to figure out how big or small that zone has to be. So if, if they don't really care, we try to see if we could make a, a wider, make it make a less wide and, and potentially deeper Vera zone so that we could potentially kind of use the water jet to open things up. But I like to leave a, a, um, a nice Vera montanum so that if they ever see another urologist, they don't think that we destroyed the Vera montanum with the aquablation procedure just from the perception that they would have that and that we affected the sphincter. But if preservation of ejaculatory function is important to them, then we, we plan accordingly. To do a decent Vera zone or that butterfly cut, so we give them a chance to, to reach those 85 to 90% preservation of
0: ejaculatory function that most of the studies, including our own, reach. And by preserving the Vermont data area at the apex, have you had to go back? and do a resection of?
1: Amazingly, very few patients. I mean, for us, the issues that we have had, and again, these are really, in 150 cases, we've had maybe two or three, less than five patients that we've had to go back and do anything and interestingly, most of those patients have been people with either meatal or, or urethral type strictures and probably from the catheter or things. And most of them have been meatal strictures. Again, i am talking about literally less than five patients. We've had one patient that we noticed that web aspect of things and doing a cystoscopy for follow-up of a bladder cancer, but he had absolutely no symptoms related to it. So, we went to do a bladder biopsy, just kind of going through the scope, opened that up. So, it wasn't a big deal from that standpoint. We had one patient who had a very large prostate who was very adamant about trying to do as much as we can for preserving ejaculatory function that we noticed that. And so we had to go back and kind of open that up for him. And we kind of like, honestly, the balloon dilation took care of most of it. But while we were there, we kind of opened it up from that standpoint. But that's really been it. But it made enough of an impression that we kind of used that to help guide us a bit in terms of paying attention to it in the future. But really, it's been very few people that we've, we've had an issue with from that standpoint. But those left an impression to think about it because it makes intuitive
0: sense that, that if you kind of leave stuff down there, you can potentially do something. And Ali, going back to what you mentioned in terms of that you were doing back in the days, you were doing terps for patients that had cancer prior to any other procedure. Are you using aquablation in those patients?
1: So... I am. You know, one of the issues that that I very recently became aware of, and really within a few months before the recent announcement that Aquabase did a great job of getting uh, the FDA to kind of make comment that we can use it for people who have prostate cancer, was that from an insurance standpoint, we couldn't do it on people who had a diagnosis of prostate cancer because before we were using it for people who had prostate cancers that we were think they were considering or thinking about doing some other therapy for prostate cancer from that standpoint. But, but it wasn't something that was happening that often where this was every patient that we're doing had had a prostate cancer, but it was something that among the people that we were, we were treating, if they had a diagnosis of prostate cancer and they did not want a prostatectomy and we needed to manage their BPH and they had a very large prostate, this was one of the options that we would consider because in our minds, it was very similar to doing a TURP. And then we have people that have large prostates and we want to kind of downsize their size, their prostate size to get them ready for other therapies and people do a TURP. So that that's how we approached it from that standpoint. I have one story of a gentleman who had 143 gram prostate and was very passionate about doing a whole gland high intensity focused ultrasound. So we went in one procedure, went from 143 gram prostate and brought his prostate
0: down to a size where the high-intensity focused ultrasound became an option, which is less than 40 grams. And do you usually do, in terms of the depth, that is the the 2.8 that you mentioned, do you try to stick to that or you sometimes have to go deeper? So
1: the depth of the water jet, the maximum that it can go is 2.4 centimeters. So when you're planning, you can't really plan further than that. So that maximizes that. So a lot of times, you're actually less than that. So based on the size of the prostate, so imagine you have a 30-gram prostate. You're gonna be much, much less than that. I actually find, honestly, smaller prostates are a lot more difficult to plan and take a little bit longer to plan than bigger prostates because they have a smaller transitional zone you have to have a median lobe, and so the median lobe is one size, and then you have a smaller transitional zone within the prostate. You have to kind of be uh, a bit smart in terms of figuring out how to do all that stuff and not affect the outer portions of things. So sometimes large prostates are much easier to plant from that standpoint. So then you have to be mindful of planning upwards where the bladder neck is so you don't undermine the trigone with the water jet aspect of things. And then and then when you're approaching up, coming to that Viramontanum and things like that, the water jet slope. Sometimes you can use a, a, there's a prime button that's called on the pedal where it gives a very soft hit of the water jet that you could do within the prostate. And it kind of identifies the the planes within the prostatic urethra a bit. And you can kind of figure out what those different planes between the zones of the prostate sometimes, when that can help you identify how to plan things. So a lot of little things you can do to help the subtleties of the anatomy of the prostate, which is someone that does a lot of cancer therapies using ultrasound and other things. It's been very nice to understand and learn more about prostate ultrasound with
0: the aqua ablation that you can apply to other things as well. Definitely, I'm learning about that functional-wise, how the prostate, uh, that area of the sphincter, so, so it's been good for me. So, I me mean, what have you what are, what are your thoughts in terms of your early experience for this in terms
1: of going from thinking about this as a concept to the application to your patients?
0: I'm very excited. I definitely the patients are, are doing great. They have great flow. I guess personally just that part when going in and everything is blurry. But like last time I started doing that, just doing the irrigation first, waiting for everything to settle and then going in. Definitely if you go in directly to with the cystoscope, you're gonna you're not gonna see anything. So that has changed, but definitely very excited about the technology. And one of the thing is that it's really, even though you are mapping the prostate, I think it's not that user dependent. I mean, because you're going to get a hole based on the mapping. And with green light, sometimes it's more subjective. Like you think that you might have a good hole. The patient might be waiting fine for two or three years. And then suddenly you go in and it's like nothing happened. So hopefully with this technology, it, it, it will stay open for a long, long time in terms of pre-op, I mean, anything special with these patients? We already mentioned anticoagulation. Are you doing any NMS or anything prior?
1: So, yes, and it depends. Early on, we were doing enemas on everyone from that standpoint of things. And now, typically, we've kind of gotten a little bit away from that aspect of things. And then we kind of assess things in the operating room. And if if, if there's, there's stool, we kind of take care of it from that standpoint of things. Sometimes we kind of talk to patients about their bowel habits and things of that nature and kind of see. So not, not on a routine basis from that standpoint. And it really hasn't affected our ability to see you know from that aspect of things. And we kind of assess patient comfort, personality, and things of that nature to some degree from that aspect of things. In terms of the workup, we do a cystoscopy, we do a urodynamics test, we do a volume measurement of the prostate, usually with an ultrasound. Then again, we do all the assessments for for prostate cancer risk from that standpoint. And typically, if there's a risk of prostate cancer, we do a biopsy beforehand, especially if they're young. Some of our older patients, You know, they often opt for doing the biopsy concurrent to that, especially if when we talk to them, they have absolutely no way that they're considering a radical prostatectomy and there's an option that they're going to consider. And we have very, very frank discussions about that. And that has to be an absolute for them or else we do the biopsy beforehand because I don't want to do, I don't want to take that off the table for them from that standpoint of things. So those are some of the preoperative workup that we do.
0: Yeah, I pretty much do the same. Definitely those patients, I did a coagulation on a 92-year-old guy. He had a PSA in 20-something, but it won't change. I mean, the the guy had a catheter, and he just wanted to continue life without a catheter. So I'm not going to do a biopsy on on him. And then intraperitone, do you do any medications or anything, tromboxane? I have heard some people using tromboxane. So it's interesting early on, you know, we did a lot of research
1: in terms of other things to potentially add to it. I remember all the committees I went to to talk about getting thromboxane and TXA and all those type of things accredited for us to use as urologists. For people that may not know, this is something that orthopedic surgeons use very routinely when they do joint procedures and things of that nature to decrease the risk of bleeding from that standpoint. So the idea with this, some people with aquablation use it preoperatively, essentially when you're doing the procedures, it's given IV, and it's been associated for other procedures to lower the risk of bleeding. And for the aquablation data, it's really kind of very mixed. So there's really nothing that's been kind of a home-run study that says when you use this, it knocks it out of the park. And the concern with it is there are theoretical risks of clotting and things of that nature associated with it, which it's not a large risk. The risk is not humongous. But for us as pelvic surgeons, we're always concerned with, with the fact that we're doing prostatic surgery and pelvic surgery in patients that, you know, usually our patients are older. A lot of our patients have cardiac disease and things of that nature. We're doing a pelvic operation for patients that may not necessarily be the healthiest of patients. So, are we going to potentially increase the risk for that? So, so it's a little bit of a, a concern of using it. And if it's not going to make a big difference, are you going to use it? So, for us, when our risk of bleeding kind of stabilized after the, the bladder neck cautery technique, we kind of abandoned kind of pursuing that as because it seemed to be not as much of an issue. When we were pursuing it early, early in the experience was when we were just kind of going in there and putting the catheter tension device. And, you know, it was just a lot more initially stressful of a day and you go home and you're just crossing your fingers of whether you should just stay to the hospital and not come home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anything to help, you know, would have helped. But then, you know, once we started the bladder nicoterie as a routine technique, then it didn't seem like kind of just adding stuff like that made that much of a difference.
0: And post-op what Foley do you use? Uh, you put a three-way. The patient continues an irrigation. Yeah, so so basically, I use a twenty-four French
1: three-way Foley catheter. Interestingly, you know, our hospital as a routine did not have that the the Royce silicone catheter from that standpoint, and it was starting to become amazingly a, a bit of a production to put it in from that standpoint. And finally, we had a few in there, and I found that it didn't make that much of a difference in terms of anything, and our patients were a little bit more uncomfortable with pulling it out because there's a little bit of a lip. Between the balloon and the actual Foley, so they're a little bit more uncomfortable when we took it out. So because it didn't make much of a difference, we have we have the 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 red just regular Foley catheter. You know, I may explore getting a, a you know a silicone catheter, see if that potentially can help from that. And we kind of use between a 22 and a 24 French three-way Foley, depending on the patient's urethral caliber and and really the meatal caliber
0: the meatus, uh, that's, that's a problem. There. At,
1: the meatus is a caliber, and that's really something we're paying a lot more attention to, because I think the meatal strictures and stenosis are really, in my opinion, just anecdotally looking at it, are related to if, if someone's meatus is not, from a caliber standpoint, suited for a 24 French, and they'd be better with a smaller cat. Sometimes that irritation of the catheter being in there could have potentially have an effect, and so if their urine is relatively clear and we don't necessarily need it, I think the 22 French may work as well. But those are the sizes that we work with. And it's just, you know, with a concern that if you put a catheter that's a bit too small, like a 20 French or an 18 French three-way, you're actually getting too small of an actual true lumen of the catheter because of that third irrigation port. So if you need to start doing irrigations and things like that, you're actually having a smaller working channel from that standpoint. So the 22 and the 24 help you from that standpoint. And do you leave them all on traction? Depends. Most people lately know because it finds like when you put it on traction, because you leave such a big open channel, the traction brings it into the prosthetic urethra and you cause more problems than you help either by stirring up a little bit more breathing or more overactive bladder symptoms or bladder spasms. Spacer, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And then if I do put it on a traction, I'm very careful to secure it in place because it's a very subtle amount of traction that you want and you don't want it to kind of pull and jab. And I, when I do it, is I do it when the legs are down. Because if you put it in one place where the legs are up in the lithotomy position, when you bring it down, now it's a whole
0: different ballgame, you know, from that standpoint. And Ali, in terms of, I mean, you, you mentioned you, they say stay overnight one day, the next day you, they go home. How long are you keeping the Foley? So for me, you know, that's always a million dollar question. So about a third, you know,
1: 30 to 40% of my patients travel I usually do these cases on a Tuesday and someone, if we have a lot of cases, we kind of add a second like Wednesday day. So for me, if they go home Wednesday, I see them Thursday or Friday. I am a bit superstitious. I'm a little bit concerned about pulling catheters on Fridays or later in the week because inevitably if something's going to happen is, you know, Friday night and I don't have any clinics on the weekend and things like that. So I tend to leave them in through the weekend and pull them Monday morning. So it tends to be five to seven days, but that's really mostly logistical aspect and for people's travel schedules and things like that. And the fact that 50% of our patients are retention patients. So I don't want to kind of pull it on a weekend and then they have an issue. Uh, A lot of times for most of our patients, we try to set up home health nursing and things like that. So it, it, it really is never, it's not yet been a big issue. And we bring them in early in the week, early in the appointments, and we get the catheter out. And that that's kind of worked well for them both in terms of travel and also to try to create an uneventful weekend for them from that standpoint.
0: Yeah. I do them on a Wednesday and my first four cases, I removed the folio on, on Friday, all of them, and only one passed the void in trial. The other ones still retain some. So now I'm just doing on Friday, on Monday, the next Monday, and I haven't had any issues since.
1: Yeah. So, so I mean, I think, and, I, and it's really a logistical aspect of things just to make sure that they have an uneventful weekend and let it be. And it really hasn't been an issue. I know some people take the catheter out sooner and people do great with it from that standpoint. But for me, it's, it's just when the people that are traveling, the size of the prostates that we typically take care of, most have a median low, you know, half of them are in retention. It's just to make sure that they don't have any events over the weekend because
0: if that happens, they're going to the emergency room. And Ali, the last question I want to ask uh, is in terms of billing. I mean, right now it's a a temporary CPT code. Do do you know anything about eventually what's any inside information on what to expect? So we were very fortunate or unfortunate, depending on the perspective, that we were part of uh, a
1: lot of the processes early on, like presenting to Medicare and a lot of the MACs and things of that nature to getting the the early payments with Anthem and Blue Cross Blue Shields and Medicare. And I I initially actually presented to Medicare because the initial non-payments for, for aqua ablation were because of an, you know the understanding of what it actually did from an anatomical standpoint of things. So I was very fortunate to be a part of that process. And my dad, who I work with as a urologist, I'm very blessed to get to work with my dad and get to operate with my dad, but also for his patients for giving me a very long leash to do things like aqua ablation, where for our first 55 cases, You know, it took a while to get payment and things of that nature. So most other people would, you know, probably have fired me uh, or said, stop doing i But that process allows us to learn from that standpoint. So, you know, at some point, the pass-through payments and things like that are going to change. But what's amazing about this aspect and the fact that we keep publishing data that allows for the reproduction of study after study after study that shows not only consistent reproducible data internationally and and in the US by not only surgeons that are experienced in this, but also surgeons who had never done this procedure before. You know, in Water 1 and Water 2, a majority of the patients who produce these outcomes that now have five-year durable results had never done this procedure. Hopefully, the payers at Medicare look at this data and they're kind of looking at the payment aspect of things. They, they understand that when you compare this to a TURP, or a green light laser, or you compare it to a simple prostatectomy, which, again, doing this, whether it's an open technique, which had significant transfusion rates and and bleeding and a long hospital stay, or a simple prostatectomy, and now people are talking about a a single port prostatectomy, the amount of skill and the learning curve to be able to do those procedures well and to be able to do them in a way that people go home in a timely manner and have the outcomes that people publish in the community setting and in rural America and in places like that, that is not easy to do. What's beautiful about the aqua ablation and why I think it deserves the payments that it does and, and, and why it deserves for it to be given the applaud that it does as a technology is is that with the low learning curve with the consistency of the outcomes and with the technology to allow you to reproduce the same plant regardless of the shape and the size of the prostate it it really kind of democratizes and it allows it puts in the hand of every urologist that knows how to do an ultrasound or knows how to use a cystoscope which is what should be every urologist comes out of training and who has a knowledge of how to do a good TURP and i think that's the deciding factor of who should be doing High volumes of this within a practice is someone, they have to have an understanding of how to do a TURP and understanding of that anatomy, which I think that's the key for this, which should be most people that, that, that are urologists. This puts the ability to take care of prostates of any size and even bigger prostates in any urologist's hands. This should be powerful for any insurance company and and Medicare to be able to give a great, great code for this, to allow this. And this should be a very attractive technology for hospitals because patients in in rural America, patients in metropolis, patients in small small cities and big cities will be able to keep these patients in their communities. And it's good for patients because they don't have to leave to go to bigger places to take care of small prostates, big prostates, And, and for a lot of people, they can take care of their BPH sooner and avoid getting to the places of the, a lot of the patients that I see where they have 457-gram prostates and they've been catheter-dependent for years because they want to avoid the side effects that they perceive to be associated with wonderful gold
0: standard technologies because they don't have back table urology's PR. <laughs> exactly. So I'm not ready to do the 450-gram prostate yet, but I'm working on that. The biggest that I have done is 180, uh, hopefully we'll continue doing bigger and bigger glands. But
1: 180 is a, a huge prostate,
0: you know? And, and, and like you mentioned, those patients usually send to, to a friend of mine either uh prostate embolization or, or a simple robotic prostatectomy. But now I'm, I'm keeping those patients in our community. And that's powerful
1: for your patients. And, that, and that's what's wonderful about this technology is that the patients are not afraid of the implications of this technology for where before they may have been.
0: Exactly. Ali, again, anything else you want to add? I, I think you 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 cover everything. I'll tell you, you know, one of the beauties of being a urologist, I think, is
1: that whether we take care of cancer, whether we take care of benign urology, we as urologists continue to drive innovation, and the way we drive innovation is always patient centric. I know we all love technology. We we all love having the discussions about technology, but at the, at, at the end of the day, the framework of our discussions is how can that technology better the lives of our patients? And this is a perfect example of that. And, and as urologists, I think the fact that we could be the gatekeeper for the, the again, you need to kind of look at prostate cancer. The backdrop of that discussion is always making sure that the quality of the life of our patients is, is a central a theme of the discussion of how we manage screening. The treatments of the disease. BPH is the same thing. We're looking to get the best treatment that gets the right treatment for the right guy at the right time. And aqua ablation is a perfect example of how urologists try to be a part of that innovation to help our patients meet the goals, whether it's a quality of life outcome from the, from the urination aspect of things or the sexual side effects that, that they're worried about may be associated with the treatment. And it's been a real, real pleasure to be a part of that from the beginning. And to watch other surgeons see how exciting this is and to be able to talk about it is a very, very fun thing to do. And to see what comes next is a great part of being a urologist. And I appreciate the opportunity to always be able to talk about things like this with friends who enjoy talking about it as
0: well. Yeah, so Ali, thanks for being back, Table. Thank you for all the hard work before and and, and the nightmares of this procedure to the point that we're now. So thank you for that.
1: No, thank you. And I want to thank my dad for letting me do things like this, because I'm sure at some point he thinks I've lost my mind. But, but uh, he's been such a mentor, both my parents and then you know, my wife and my kids and my family for, for letting me kind of go on on these uh, limbs to do stuff like this. Uh, but it's, it's great fun. And the Procept team for being so supportive throughout this process early on and, and, and for all of us working together to, to bring this to patients. Oh, thank
0: you, Ali. Thank you. Yeah. With support from Josh McWhirter,
1: Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy lui
0: Thanks again for listening and see you next week.